The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Our Father, we're so thankful we get to come before your word now. We need your help, and we're reminded, especially by the passage in front of us, just how desperately we actually need your help to hear your word, to have a soft heart, an open mind, and to believe, to be changed. So we pray that, uh, unlike that moment in that synagogue, you would do a mighty work here among us, as you have done so many thousands of times. Lord, open our eyes to behold Jesus and believe. Um, We pray this in his name. Amen. So we're continuing through uh, the Gospel of Mark this morning. Just remember some basics. Mark was an associate of the Apostle Peter. So that's important because this is a record of Peter's eyewitness account. So it's written within 30, 40 years of the life of Jesus. So here we remember, this is a document of real historical account. This is it's not a myth or a legend. This is a claim of what actually happened. But it's a gospel, and that's, a, that's many things, but it's a genre of literature. So I'll just say this. It means it's an invitation. Mark is telling you something that happened in history so that you'll believe it, and that will change you. Three questions at the heart of Mark's gospel. Number one, who is Jesus? That makes all the difference. It means everything. Who is he? What did he come to do? Why did he come? And number three, how should we respond to him? So depending on how you answer the first question, who is Jesus, that ought to have a massive implication on how you answer, especially the third question, how should we respond to him? Well, this morning's passage focuses in on the issue of response, doesn't it? Specifically, this passage is about how not to respond to Jesus, Unfortunately, this is one of the most popular ways to respond to Jesus, and it's how not to respond to Jesus. So we're in chapter 6, just to remember some background. We notice a real change of the environment in this passage, don't we? If If you were here last week, last week our passage ended on just this incredibly high note, right? Jesus holds this, this little dead girl, he holds her hand and says, Basically, honey, wake up. And she gets up, and everybody's amazed. He raised this little girl from the dead. And that just reminds us of what we've seen the last few weeks. I mean, Jesus has been making it look easy. There's a storm. He calms it. There's a demon-possessed man who rushes him and the disciples. He casts out the demons and heals and restores this man. Sickness and death, no problem. He's, he's facing all our enemies, and he's overcoming them. And of course... Mark keeps telling us the crowds are amazed. Everyone's amazed, shocked, amazed, overwhelmed, just like you would be if you saw this. You'd be so amazed. But everything changes in chapter 6. This time, Jesus is amazed. Jesus is shocked. Now, what would amaze Jesus? What would shock him? Look at Mark 6, 6, page 841 in your share Bibles. And he marveled because, because of their what? Their unbelief. Their unbelief. So we're learning about unbelief this morning. So our theme is not exactly a, a happy theme. It's more fun to preach on Jesus raising someone from the dead. But it's an important theme, incredibly important. So I want to give you four reasons thinking about this idea of unbelief, why that's so important. 
Number one, it serves as a warning. This passage is telling you, and many others in the Bible, that really the worst thing that can happen to you is unbelief, that you would fall into and continue in unbelief. That's actually the worst thing that can happen to you. So it's a warning. Number two, it serves as an instruction. Something really interesting in this passage we see about how unbelief works, how it functions. And I think that's very helpful because it helps us understand ourselves. Even the most mature Christian in here, you sometimes struggle with aspects of unbelief still in your life, don't you? And then especially the thing that keeps us from trusting Christ is this powerful force called unbelief. This text helps us understand how this is working. So that's going to make a big difference for understanding ourselves, conversations with others. Third reason this is so important, it serves as a stabilizer for our expectations. Unbelief is epidemic. So this this passage preps us for what life is like in an unbelieving world. Fourth, we will end on a happy note. Unbelief, this passage on unbelief, it serves as an inspiration for us to further thank God for his grace in our lives. Because it's not just that you believe and then you receive so many benefits from God because you've believed. There's an aspect of that. We're going to see, at least it's implied in this passage, that even your belief itself is a gift from God. Your belief itself is a massive sign of God's grace in your life. So Lord willing, we're going to see four things together from this passage. Number one, a portrait of unbelief. We watch this story, this picture, picture of unbelief. Number two, we're going to learn some of how unbelief functions, how it works. Number three, we're going to see some of how this passage should form our expectations. And number four, we'll see our hope in the face of unbelief. Okay, so that's where we go. Number one, portrait of unbelief. Well, after all these massive deeds, crowds following him, he can't even eat, he's healed, he's healed just crowds and crowds of people, miracles, resurrection, incredible. Jesus goes home. And where's he from? Anybody remember? He's from Nazareth. And Nazareth does not have a great reputation. It's like, the, it's like a combo between the ghetto and Hickville, Palestine version. It's just this rocky hillside, and, and scholars say maybe 500 people lived there during Jesus' time. So super small town. That also means everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows everyone. So you imagine Jesus going home at this point, and what incredible stories he and the disciples would have to tell those who supposedly know him and love him most. I mean, it's always good to see friends and family after you've been separated for a while. And what do you want to do? How have you been? And then they tell you of your experiences and joys or sorrows. Imagine, imagine the story Jesus and disciples would have as they go home to Nazareth. And of course, people at Nazareth, they've already heard a lot of this from the testimony of other people. But they would have stories like, you can't believe everything we've seen in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And his hometown could celebrate. Because, I mean, you know, even if you're like a great athlete and you win the World Series or something, sometimes a small town, they'll name a street after you or something, right? Well, what if you come home and you're like, yeah, raised a girl from the dead? What a celebration this should be. 
We see right away he goes to the synagogue and teaches. Just by the way, where, where is Jesus on Saturday morning in his context? Where is he every Saturday morning? He goes to church. He goes to church. That's just an example for us. If Jesus is your king, he wants you to meet with believers. And so here he is. He's going to synagogue. And of course, he's earned the right to speak. And he speaks. And as usual, the community is astonished. They're amazed because nobody, nobody taught like he taught. Nobody's done what he's done. What would it be like to be with Jesus? And you see the questions they ask in verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Just notice, what do they admit about Jesus right here in this verse? What do they admit? They admit incredible truth, right, in his teaching. What else do they admit? Incredible wisdom, incredible power. Wisdom and power, they admit it. They're not lacking in evidence, are they? They're not lacking in evidence. But look how this group responds in the face of all this evidence about Jesus. Not only is he with them, not only, and the text tells us, it's, it's kind of ironic. It, it kind of puts it in like a negative tone. He could only heal a few people there. I mean, even that's kind of, kind of amazing, isn't it? He laid his hands on and healed several people. I mean, we've, wow. Evidence is not lacking. Look at how they respond. They're, they're, the text says they're offended. They're offended. And, you, and Mark, you know, it's very subtle, this language. Did you, did you see how they refer to Jesus? They refer to Jesus as this man. Where did this man get these things? That's kind of a subtle dig, right? It, you don't know his name? It's as if it communicates distance. It communicates like they don't want to be acquainted with him or connected to him. And then they say, uh, they call him the carpenter. Why do they mention that? Is it just, hey, what did he do for work? No, it's, that's, that's kind of an insult too. It, it, it gives the sense of saying, Jesus, pretending like you're this prophet or this teacher, it, you're out of your place. Stop, stop acting like you're a big deal. The, the idea that all these crowds are massing to him in all these other villages, they're offended by this. They're bothered by this. Remember your place, Jesus. Then they, then they call him the son of Mary. Now, in our day, we're not immediately bothered by that because we hear the son of Mary and we think, yes, Mary is wonderful, isn't she? That's, that's what we think. Oh, Mary's great. And, and she is great. Nothing against Mary. But that is not how this community meant that phrase. It's not what they meant. It's a patriarchal society. Your name uh, is based on who your dad is. Usually your name is son of your dad. That's, that's normally your name. So to, to give it, you're the son of Mary, commentators agree, that's a vibe of an insult. And, and we can, uh, with an educated guess, we can imagine this is a reference to something this community doesn't understand. Uh, what does Matthew tell you about the birth of Jesus? He's born of a virgin, right? It's according to the prophet. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah said that would be the case. It's because Jesus is the son of God. We believe huge things about Jesus. One person, two natures, eternally God. And also he's taken on human nature in the way that has shown itself in the way he came. He's born of a virgin. Well, if you don't believe that, what does it look like about the nature of Jesus' birth? 
He was, he was born out of wedlock, and in that society, a traditional society especially, that's a dark shame. And so his skeptics use the situation of his birth as a way to slander him. It's a way to say, we, we know your background. And that's just dirty, isn't it, anyway, for anybody to do? Um, we know your background. This happens later in Jesus' life. Look at John 8, 41. <clears throat> This is classy, right? They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We had one father, even God. That's the religious leaders coming against Jesus. And Jesus' response, verse 42, Jesus said to them, this is a big statement, if God were your father, what? You would love me, for I came from God. Just meditate on that a moment. The only way you can know you belong to God in a covenant relationship as his child is if you love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Uh, Moving on, back to our text, Matthew 6. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? So they mention his brothers and sisters. Are not his sisters here with us? If you came from a Roman Catholic background, this might surprise you. What? Um, there's a Greek word for cousin. Mark's not using that word here. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but here, and, and Joseph praises God somewhere, she did not remain that way. They had other children, but that, that, none of that really the point is here. The point is, we know his siblings, and they're nothing particularly special. What's the group saying? They're they're offended at the greatness of Jesus in some way due to their familiarity with him. It offends their pride. They're scandalized. That's the Greek word. He's a scandal to them. So think of the word offended. They're hostile to Jesus. They're disgusted by Jesus. They're wanting distance from Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus. Read Luke 4. Another moment when he goes home. And teaches the truth, they want to kill him and throw him off a hill. So it's, this is why it's so amazing. It's absolutely amazing. This is why Jesus is shocked. They have all this incredible evidence for who Jesus is. And he's right there in front of them. The kindest, wisest, most powerful, most profound person to ever exist. He's right there. And despite the evidence, what do they do? They reject him. And Mark says, this is a portrait of unbelief. This is what we mean by unbelief. So think for a moment. Are are the people in the synagogue, are they atheists? They are not atheists. They believe in God. The people in the synagogue, they read the Bible. And Jesus is amazed by their unbelief. They do not believe. What? What what is this? Usually uh, people say, I believe, right? And and what do they mean just on the street corner? I believe there is a God. That's good. That's an important step. We want that to be there. You you still don't have belief like the Bible's talking about it. You even say, "I I think the Bible is the word of God. That is a hugely important step. We are all for that. That's still not enough to have belief like the Bible's talking about it. 
those people here are rejecting Jesus. What is unbelief? Just to think for a moment about what it's not. It's not about a lack of knowledge. So there's a lot of things in this life I'm really stupid about. Uh, Some of you are into science, or if you're a mechanic and you came to me and said, hey, do you believe in or do you know about, and you gave me some some of those words about a part of a car or a scientific process. And I won't even try to say one because I don't really know any. And if you were like, do you believe in that? And I would have to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if I believe it. That's not what the Bible means by unbelief. It's not about not knowing what to think because you have no evidence to consider. It's not something about just straight ignorance. No, unbelief in the Bible is different. And I'm, this is my definition, okay? So I didn't quote anybody because this is my definition. You can see what you think. This is what I think the Bible says unbelief is. A rebellious spin on knowledge you do have that rationalizes rejection of God and his truth. So you do have some knowledge but you're going to spin that and turn that. And there's an attitude behind it that doesn't want to submit to God. And so as you have this real knowledge, you, you, you spin it, and, and, and it rationalizes your rejection of God and his truth. I think that's what the Bible means by unbelief. Because that's what these people in the synagogue, that's what they're doing. That's what unbelief all through the scriptures, that's what it's doing. So that's a portrait of unbelief. Now let's look a little bit at how unbelief is functioning. I find this really interesting. Number one, we see how unbelief ignores the profound. So I'm going to give you two things. Number one, unbelief ignores the profound and obsesses on the peripheral. But first, let's start with ignoring the profound. You remember what they admitted. What do we know about Jesus? Oh, he's incredibly wise, and he's incredibly powerful. What should you do in response if that's true? Wouldn't you at least want to seek a little bit? Ask some more questions? What do you mean by this? How do you see yourself? Show me some Bible verses, like some investigation. Tell me more. I mean, a picture of discipleship all through Mark. People who who trust Jesus, they want to be with him. They want to listen to him. So you think, we know, we know you're doing incredible miracles and nobody teaches like you do. Obvious response to that would be, seek, investigate, go further. But these folks, no, they're ignoring the profound. We know he has wisdom and power and moving on. That's what unbelief does. It comes in contact with the profound, but it's like shaking it off real quick. Move move in another direction as fast as possible in order to obsess over the peripheral. I mean, listen to, their, listen to their objections to Jesus. You know, if they said something like, um, he gets the Bible wrong, well, let's listen to that. Or if he said something like, he's a sinner. We saw the way he treated someone once. Oh, okay, we'd listen to that. That's not their objection. Did you hear what their objection was? He's a carpenter. We know his family. Do you see what's happening? What does this have to do anything with anything that's substantial? Uh, try to put their unbelief into a simple statement, something like this. Despite Jesus' wisdom and power, he cannot be the Messiah. 
Why? Because he worked as a carpenter and we know his family. That doesn't follow. What what do your reasons have to do with anything on earth? Everyone knows Jesus is from the line of David, born in Bethlehem. The Gospels just show you that over and again. What about your own scriptures? I'll just give you one example. I had to cut pages right here. Isaiah 53. Here's what the Bible says, their Bible says about the Messiah. He had what? No form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So part of their objection about him is that he's too plain, he's too normal, he's from Nazareth, and yet their own Bible says the Messiah will look very plain and normal. Oh, but he can't be the Messiah. What are you doing? They're ignoring the profound and obsessing on the peripheral. Why would you do that? They don't want to believe. It's not about the evidence. It's about their rebellious hearts. They don't want to believe. Unbelief is a rebellious spin on knowledge you do have that rationalizes rejection of God and his truth. So I wanted to pause here now and think about just two modern examples of this. I bet on your own you could come up with many, many more. But if it's true, if we're reading this right, how unbelief works, number one, you... What do you do? You ignore the profound, right? We came in, move that out of the way, and let's obsess over the peripheral. And here's, here's two common ways I, I see this happening. You could probably think of more. Number one, I don't, I don't really need to seriously consider Jesus because of all the hypocrisy in the church. I don't need to consider Jesus because of the hypocrisy in the church. So first of all, let's be, let's be honest. Is hypocrisy in the church a problem? Yes. Is it real and terrible? Yes, should we, should we watch our lives? Uh, yes, for the glory of God, yes. I mean, I came across fresh stories just this week in people I know that are heartbreaking. Christians or people who claim to be Christians can behave very badly, and it's painful, it's embarrassing, yes, okay. So that's an, it's an important issue. It's worth talking about, it's worth thinking about. But I will suggest to you that whether it, when it comes to whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, hypocrisy in the church is obsession with the peripheral. It has nothing to do with the issue. It it doesn't even come close to disproving that Jesus might be the son of God. Number one, here's the main reason. The Bible tells you that hypocrisy in the church will be a constant problem. I mean, actually, we would have a a crisis of faith if you never saw any hypocrisy in the church. Because you'd be like, this whole New Testament, it's all concerned about nothing. Why all this problem about Christians behaving badly and false teachers? I've never seen any of it. You'd have to wonder if you could trust the Bible. It's nearly on every page in the New Testament that this could be a problem. You should expect it. And yet, oh, I can't believe in Jesus because of hypocrisy in the church. That is obsession with the peripheral. Jesus was sent to a cross by religious people who read the Bible. They also ignore the profound. What about the part where he claims to be the son of God, teaches the most profound truth the world has ever heard, does scads of overwhelming miracles, predicts his death and resurrection, fulfills countless biblical prophecies? What if he does all of that just as he said? What if he's transformed the world and millions of people's lives and the unbeliever's like, 
Unbelief is like, I didn't see any of that. I didn't hear any of that. But I, but I met some hypocrites in the church. So, so honestly, right, to be loving, compassionate people, um, I'm not meaning to patronize pain that church brings. I have my own, okay? We could talk about that. I'm not meaning to say that's not important or we shouldn't think about it. I'm just saying when that is used as an excuse to not consider Jesus Christ as the Son of God and to not respond to him, that is unbelief functioning because it is ignoring the profound for the sake of obsession with the peripheral. Here's another one. I don't need to trust Jesus because I'm a good person. It's the most common religion in the world. Spiritual but not religious because I believe I'm pretty much a good person. So here's how this fits into our equation. Here's the obsession with the peripheral. You're pretty sure you tend to be nicer than the most annoying people you know. I won't even argue with you. It's probably true. In fact, if we want to add the argument I just mentioned, you're pretty sure you're nicer than some Christians you know. I'll even be glad to be like, that's probably true. Some of you, I know unbelievers who I think are nicer than I am. You also believe, in in this case with unbelief, this obsession with the peripheral, that you haven't committed some of those really terrible crimes that are out there. And we're thankful for that. What on earth does that have to do with your standing before a holy and righteous God who made you? What on earth does any of that have to do with it? Do you think the worst neighbor you can think of is the standard God will use to judge you? What is this fantasy we have created? What is this mythology? What evidence would you have to bring? I mean, if we really unpack this, what evidence would you have to bring that your opinions on morality are the universal standard for all people that God will use? Doesn't that sound cocky when you say it like that? It sounds incredibly prideful to say it like that. That's because it is prideful. And it overlooks the profound. Here's the profundity. Doesn't your heart tell you in the secret moments you haven't even kept your own moral standard? Don't you have to admit that somewhere out there, somebody did something to you that hurt you, it outraged you, it made you so angry, and you've done the same thing? There's a verse in Ecclesiastes, I don't remember it exactly, but it's like, don't be too mad when you hear somebody talking smack about you. Don't you know you've done the same thing to others? We get so offended by what some people say. Do you want everything you ever said played on a recording here at church one Sunday? Would any of you, would any of you be like, I'm a good person. I'm ready to stand before a holy God now. That would be enough to incriminate all of us. We don't keep our own moral standard. And then much less, have you considered God's moral standard in his word? <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God's word. Seek it, internalize it, and live it out. Or, or even just thinking of 1 John, like ingredients of the Christian life. If you don't love your brothers and sisters palpably, we're wondering if you even know the love of the Father. Do you feel that? Who can stand before God's holy standard? I cannot. I cannot. 
And so we think, man, when, when we say, I don't need to trust Jesus because I'm a good person. Yeah, it, that's unbelief. It's obsessing over the peripheral, and it's overlooking the profound. Finally, just on that, I just want to hit this idea on the chin as many times as I can. When we say we can be right with God by our own goodness, we are also saying that God's gift of his son, that Jesus humbling himself and taking on human flesh and going to a cross for us in our place, we are saying that that was unnecessary. And if, in fact, God did send his son and Jesus did take on human flesh and live a perfect life for you and was tempted and tried and went to a cross and rose from the dead, if he, in fact, did those things because that's what you needed to save you, is, wouldn't it be true that to look at that and be like, well, it was really unnecessary. I could have done it myself. <laughs> Isn't that, can you be a good person and actually say that to a good God? That's not goodness. That's just in rampant pride. And so I think we see how unbelief is working here. So it's in this passage, right? Number one, unbelief. Well, it's got a rebellious tendency. So what does it do? It wants to ignore the profound and obsess with the peripheral, all for the sake of getting out from under submission to Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't want to trust Jesus. The third thing to say here about how unbelief, what, how unbelief is functioning, it leads to judgment. It leads to, it leads to judgment. The Bible says that unbelief is a moral issue. It's not an evidence issue. This kind of unbelief that we're talking about, it's a moral issue. The evidence is there. Jesus is worthy of our trust and our praise. And you remember Jesus' first sermon in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you think that comes as a suggestion? You might consider a conversation, or is it a command? Repent and believe the gospel. Look what God has done to save you. It's a command, folks. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. And for us to go, no. It's disobedience. It's Rebellion, it brings judgment. And you see that even in this passage, verses four to five. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. So that's, that's a proverb they would be familiar with. It basically means familiarity breeds contempt, right? We've said that. Familiarity breeds contempt. And is, is that like a good thing? Is that a noble thing? That just because you're familiar with something beautiful that you're now holding it in contempt? No, it's a part of our wretchedness that we do that. And Jesus says, that's what you're doing with me. And then verse 5 is haunting. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few people and healed them. And we've already said, well, that seems like a mighty work to me. But in comparison to what he's been doing, it's, it's tapered down. So we ask, is this because is this Jesus, what does it mean he couldn't do it? Well, it's a little mysterious, right? He is, he is acting um, in, in his human nature according with the power of the Spirit. So somehow... The, the, the just rampant, gracious power that, that has been experienced in some places is lessened here. But, but here we want to ask, is it because all of a sudden Jesus is weak now and can't do things? Is that really the way we're supposed to see this? No. I mean, doesn't he do incredible miracles when there's no one to believe at all? Of course. This is not inability per se. This is judgment. It's judgment. 
because these people didn't want to know Jesus. And so guess what God gave them? He gave them what they wanted. Isn't it heartbreaking? Sometimes the worst thing God can do to you is give you what you want when you want the wrong things. This community said, Jesus, we don't want you. We don't want who you are. And so they didn't get to experience his grace and his goodness, its judgment. They, unbelief cuts itself off from the grace of God. It says, God, I don't want you. I don't want your goodness. I don't want what you can do for me. And God in his justice will often say, okay, have what you want. Look at what Jesus said in John 8, 24. I think he said it with a broken heart, but this is what he said. Unless you believe that I am he, what? You will die in your sins. Listen, hear the spirit of this. Jesus, is, he's, he's not a hypocrite. He's the kindest man ever. He came to save us from our sins. He's, he's saying this with a broken heart, but this is the hardcore reality of it. When unbelief owns us, when we don't want to come to Jesus, when we ignore the profound and obsess in the peripheral and insist on going our own way, unbelief cuts us off from the grace of God. And unless you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, your sins are on your own head. And that is the doorway to hell. It's awful. It's horrible. So we weren't kidding when we said unbelief is the worst thing that can happen to you. All right, we've seen some of how it functions. Now let's see how this passage can form our expectations. Mark 6, verse 1, you'll notice Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed with him. So who did Jesus bring with him when he went home? His disciples. And then it's interesting to note, verse 7, what does he do with his disciples in verse 7? He calls the 12 and begins to send them out. We'll look at that next week. So do you notice something? It's as if part of the plan here is Jesus wants to give his disciples a little education. The disciples are going to be called to go out and proclaim Jesus in what context? The context of an unbelieving world. And you'll notice unbelievers like to slander the messenger. Unbelief likes to slander the messenger. What did they say about Jesus when he came to preach in the synagogue? They, they just insulted him. They said he was dirty, right? Oh, son of Mary. They slandered him. The kindest, most loving, most profound person ever, they slandered him. Church, didn't, didn't Jesus say, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you? We're going to be Christians in an unbelieving world, and sometimes we'll be slandered. So we, we want to stop the truck here a little bit, right? Don't go out with a martyr syndrome and be a jerk and then have people not like you and they'll be like, well, it's because I follow Jesus. No, it's because you're a jerk, right? Look, <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. So just because you offended someone who doesn't believe, uh, we're not automatically like, oh, no, it, it could be because, again, back to that other thing we were talking about, you may have been being a hypocrite, okay? But having said that, sometimes you will be as loving as you can conceivably be and tell the truth as gently as you can 
and you will be hated and slandered for it. Jesus promises that, actually. He promises that. We are to go out in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus into a world where unbelief is rampant. Look what Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 13. We won't unpack it. We'll just read it. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. We'll just pause there for a second. Would you still go? Would you sitting here still go if you're going to be unjustly slandered and horribly mistreated for Jesus? Because Jesus said you will be, and it's even on purpose. It's for his sake to bear witness for him in that context. Verse 12, this is terrible. I do not like this verse. Brother will deliver brother over to death. That's happened in some places. The father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. There are places in the world where it's like this to be a Christian. Verse 13, you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does that do for your expectations? And we, we live in the modern West, and you can do whatever you believe you can do. You know, If you can dream it, you can do it, right? And you combine a little of that with, I'm filled with the, God, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to preach the gospel, and everybody's going to believe. No, they're not. They're not. Some people will believe. It's glorious. And some people will hate you. Love your enemy, forgive them, and keep rolling. Keep living for Jesus. Keep telling the truth. This, this is meant to change their expectations. As we'll see next week, if you want to read ahead, you'll see the story of Herod and John the Baptist. It's another picture of the same thing. It's coming right just next. But I want, I want to give just one minute on this thought, too. It's not only just having expectations about the world's unbelief towards us. Let's admit, too, even for the strongest Christian, whoever you may be, uh, you still have to deal with your own unbelief, don't you? Don't you have to be, deal with your own unbelief? I mean, when you read the Bible, every time are you like, yes, Lord, I believe, and you go and you put it into practice immediately? Or do you too still struggle with or that unforgiveness, rampant anxiety, lack of reconciliation, all these things. At the seed, isn't it true? At the heart of every disobedience is unbelief. God's not that good. His word's not that true. It'd be better, actually, if I replaced him and did this instead. We have to fight our own unbelief, even when we've been changed, even when we trust Jesus. There's still parts of our life. So this, this changes our expectations. We've seen a portrait of unbelief, some of how unbelief works, how this should form our expectations. Here's the last point for this morning, our hope in the face of unbelief. How do you save yourself from your own unbelief? 
And especially I'm thinking of, and those of you who converted as adults, maybe you can remember, remember this flavor. If, you're, if your life is fundamentally, fundamentally, I don't want to believe in Jesus, how do you change to want to believe in Jesus? There's no answer to that in this passage. But I think the answer is in the scriptures is that you can't. Romans 8, the, the unbelieving mind is hostile to God. It can't even please God. Not because you don't have the ability to do certain things, it's because you don't want to. But our unbelief, as powerful as it is, is not the fundamental power. I love how at the end of this passage, even here, it didn't stop, Jesus did it. He kept doing miracles. He kept teaching. It didn't stop him. He kept going. And, and then we realize as we keep reading in Mark, he didn't just come to teach and do miracles. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die on a cross for us. Look at Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a what? A ransom. So part of the picture of the cross is Jesus purchasing you out of something and bringing you into something else. Then we realize... You know, Mark tells us at the very beginning, doesn't he? He tells us in verse one who Jesus is. And then it's kind of amazing as we read through the gospel, nobody except the demons get it. He says, hey, Jesus is the son of God. Nobody's getting it. Until finally at the end of, the, of this gospel, and it's actually in the very shadow of the cross itself. Do you know who the first human is? to proclaim who Jesus is in the gospel of Mark. Look at this, Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Faith from the most unexpected person at the foot of the cross. Jesus died to save you from your unbelief. Jesus talks about how this works in John 3. John 3, 3. Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus. Remember who Nicodemus is? Religious professional. He knows the scriptures. He follows the rules. He comes to talk to Jesus. Jesus blows him away. John 3, 3, Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Isn't that horrible in a way? What did you say to Nicodemus, a religious professional? Hey, none of the things you're doing in and of themselves get you into the kingdom of God. Something has to happen to you that you can't actually do yourself. How many of you were in charge of uh, how you were born? Did, did you get sent like a, a clipboard, you know, in the heavenlies? What kind of family would you prefer? Epoch of history? We'll write that down for you. No. What did you have to do with your birth? Nothing. This makes us totally dependent. It humbles us. Do not marvel, verse 7, I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows 
where it wishes and you hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So this illustration of the wind, you, you see its effect, but you're not in charge of it and you can't predict it and you can't control it. So it is with everyone who is what? Born of the Spirit. What's he saying? The, the Spirit of God has to actually come upon an unbelieving heart and do something to that heart. Change those desires so that the heart that was hard and stubborn and won't listen now is soft and humble and, and pliable. And then when that changed heart encounters the gospel, well, this is what happens down in verse 16. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, what, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send in his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever, what, believes in him is not condemned. Jesus died to save you from the penalty and the power of your unbelief. That's how deep this goes. He died for all the ways you refused to believe God and his truth. Not only that, he died to purchase you so that at the right time, the Holy Spirit could visit you and call you and open your eyes and change your heart so that when you heard the gospel that time, you went, yes, I need this. If you believe, thank God for his grace that you believe. It's his love for you. It's his gift for you. It's how he's won you. And of course, now maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to some of you today. It's possible someone came in here today not believing. And as they hear about Jesus from his word, maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, believe and be saved. So we've seen this picture of unbelief. We understand how some of it works, the danger of it changes. It it forms our expectations. But here's the question. Who's Jesus? He's the eternal son of God, took on flesh. What did he come to do? He came to save his people through his life, death, and his resurrection. How will you respond to him? Do you believe? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your endurance and uh, patience with people who will not believe in you. We thank you that you keep working, you keep teaching. We thank you for the power of what you've done in your life and your death and your resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that we here, we would grow in our faith in you, our love for you, our desire to know you, to seek you, to worship you, to be like you. Increase our faith, Lord. We pray that as you send us out into the world to represent you as we can in our lives, in our speech, Lord, that that we would be ready to love people in their unbelief, that we'd be ready to talk to people and persuade based on the truth of who you are and be, be ready even to suffer if necessary for your sake and for your glory. And most of all, Lord, we pray that we would continue to see your gracious hand at work in changing hearts and opening eyes and opening ears and bringing about faith that more and more people would come to see 
and know and love and trust Jesus Christ. We pray this for your glory, Lord, and our joy in him. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fofcrc.com.